Well, to get this started, I'm going to mention how I came across this podcast. It was actually uh, through Selena Flores. We attended a Spanish conversation group together, and I noticed it on her uh, Facebook page. She posted it. And as soon as I opened that up and started listening to it, I was hooked. It was, it was amazing. Um, and on that, how did y'all meet? Uh, how did this project get started? Uh, why were you interested in working on this podcast and what were your roles? From my perspective, I'll jump in because um, I think I, I have kind of a linear chronological perspective in that um, I was involved in being a founder of uh, anti-racist action through a street organization called the Minneapolis Baldies, who were an anti-racist skinhead crew in Minneapolis in the 80s and 90s. And uh, we assisted in not only fighting neo-Nazis in, in my region in the Midwest, uh, but we actually had some ties to Portland and got involved with some of the organizing and resistance that was going on here. Uh, since then, I've done a lot, a lot of different things, but in recent years, um, I was looking at trying to go back and interview some of the people that I fought Nazis with, primarily black skinheads, um, for a project called Black Skinhead. Uh, parallel to that experience and, and over the years, I, I've been living in Portland since I moved here from Minneapolis. Eventually, I worked at KBU, where I met Aaron, who was a program director. And Aaron and I have become friends through working at KBU together and having some common interests. And when Aaron knew what I was up to with the Black skinhead stories that I was collecting through re interviewing people I knew, um, Aaron let me know that there was a bequest left uh, to do some journalist, journalism, radio journalism around uh, resisting the religious right um, through a Marla Davis fund. And so Aaron helped facilitate getting some material resources to finance um, what ultimately became deeper than just a black skinhead story. And that's where, that was the beginning of us working together and Aaron helped assemble a team. Um, Selena and I have also met through work at Cable and uh, the rest is history from my perspective. Thank you. To just sort of do the handoff, like as Mike is working on the, um, the larger story of the black skinhead group and founding of anti-racist action as a national um, organization. Um, I also like, had been always wanted to tell um, tell the story of the murder of Muligeta Sarah and the organizing, like the the cross cultural um, organizing that happened around his murder, um, especially in the last let's say ten ish years, while um, the Proud Boys and the Patriot Prayer and all of that had come up and seeing that there was the street activism that was fighting the, you know, the alt-right, the new, the new neo-Nazis. Um, but there wasn't that cross-cultural organizing happening to support them. Um, that, that, that Portland as a community was letting, basically letting the kids just take it on themselves and um, not providing support. So 
um, knowing that around the Mula Gedisara, that it was a lot of the teenagers who were doing the fighting and then the people who were supporting them were not that much older, but were college kids or college graduates and then some like older long-term activists. And they really were out in the radical community to provide more support um, and just work, you know, more mutual aid, more being there for each other. So um, seeing that this was a moment where it would be really healthy for us to have actually known our history to then like learn the lessons, both, you know, things that we could do that were similar and also things that um, we can learn from mistakes or missteps from. So, um, so Mike got money to support the Black Skinhead book and then I got some money from this fund to do a podcast project. So um, I am not, um, you know, I was working a full-time job. And so I asked Selena if she could step into the project as a main producer, as well as Mike and I to help um, like track down the people that we would interview and just kind of do the nagging follow-up stuff. And then um, because we had some money, we could support some other people to do some of the interviews so that there was a wider perspective of people who did the interviews. Um, and probably um, I'd say Mike and Selena and I ended up doing about 80% um, of the interviews. And then uh, the other 20% were done by other specific people associated with KBU. And um, Selena, if you want to talk about kind of the, that work that you were doing. The work of um, finding people? Yeah, I think just finding people and how, and then how you kind of fit in. I mean, this is where I sort of see, like you stepped into that and then your role just grew so much more as we're like, wait, Selena can do everything. <gasps> <Yeah>. <laughs> all right, let's do this, let's do this. So, you know, getting to pull in all of your talents. Well, so I had been a volunteer at KBU and um, had for a long time wanted to do some sort of podcast or interviewing or something like that. And Aaron had put out a call for people to do an interview, um, just one. And I was like, oh, I'll, I want to apply for that. So I did and I got it. And then it kind of grew from there where I um, ended up becoming kind of like a coordinator of interviews where I was researching people. I found um, Abby Layton, who's mentioned in the podcast, and she really um, kind of like opened up the CHD for us. She really connected us with like Scott Nakagawa and Eric Ward and all those people. Um, so yeah, I was more focused on the CHD aspect um, of the interviews from my um, for my part. All right, well, thanks. Um, that kind of goes into this other question about uh, how you did the research finding the interview subjects for this podcast. How did that occur? So the primary interviews, going back to when we first started recording interviews, came from um, me going, reaching out to people that I actually grew up in organized and fought Nazis with. So that went... I think I interviewed probably about six or seven people who show up in various episodes of the podcast. And that was primarily focused on people I knew from Chicago and Minneapolis, a couple who live, who are from Chicago, Minneapolis, but who live in Atlanta currently. And then when it became not just about black skinheads 
that I grew up with and intersected with the, the history of anti-fascist organizing and resistance here in Portland, Oregon. Um, that's also when intersected when the production team grew from me and Aaron to Aaron, Selena, me, Julie Perini, um, Icky, Mo Balstern, and uh, there might have even been one or two other people that helped it for, for limited periods. And then it expanded beyond my personal um, network into a broader network. And pretty much when we would approach people to do interviews, because I did more of the, um, Selena focused a lot on CHC, I focused a lot more on the ARA Sharp folks. And I would say, hey, we're doing this podcast project with Mike Crenshaw. And that was basically enough for people to trust us. Like they trust Mike or, you know, then they would be like, oh, I had a really good experience with that interview. I will tell my friends, they trust you. So it was a very word of mouth, organic um, way to get the, the sharp ARA folks um, to be involved with the organizing. And really it was just um, a matter of finding them and scheduling people. People were mostly pretty into it. So it wasn't, it wasn't as hard to track them down as it was the CHD folks. I think that there's, um, for the people who are more involved in the Skinheads Against Racial Prejudice um, and different anti-racist skinhead crews and that aspect of uh, anti-racist action, a lot of those people got inspired by hearing the early episodes and actually started to reach out. And so some of that material is going to be bonus material that's currently in production. And for my part, finding Abby on Facebook, I just searched her on Facebook and she responded. And then we started communicating via email. And that's when she gave me a lot of people's email addresses. All right, thank you. So um, this next question seems a bit kind of personal uh, because it talks about your personal experience with the fight against white nationalisms in this, in this time period. Would, did you want to talk about that? In the uh, 80s and 90s, you mean? Yes. You want to, you want to start with that one, Aaron? Uh, sure. Um, I, um, I lived in Northern California in the late 80s and was um, not exactly like involved in the punk scene, like going to shows, wasn't really an organizer yet, but was definitely a participant in trying to figure it out. And um, the biggest the two major places where there were punk shows, there were some in the small town that I lived in, but mostly we went to Sacramento to see shows or the Bay Area, San Francisco, Berkeley. And both of those places had pretty bad Nazi skinhead um, problems. So in Sacramento, um, you know, I was not ever really a fighter. There were some physical altercations, but it was definitely like, this is a problem, how do we get together to do, to fight this? Like this is, this takes organizing, but you know, I wasn't really living in these places and I was not quite yet like a fully active part of the scene. 
So it was definitely just something that we talked about a lot and thought about a lot. And then I had, um, in the midst of that, I had moved to a place where I was more involved and more getting more politically active with groups of people. And in 19, November of 1988 is when Mula Geta was murdered. Um, and we did some just like protesting around that, but also then we'd go to the Bay Area. And then um, at a certain point, I heard about anti-racist action through the fanzine Maximum Rock and Roll and then started to see it in action in the Bay Area and was like, this is incredible. This is amazing. This is, um, this is how we can win. And it just felt like just so empowering and freeing and just like, you know, they, they are bullies and we can, we don't have to, you know, like there are ways we can do this organizing. And then, you know, finding out later when I moved to Portland and meeting Mike that he was part of one of the founders of that was like, oh, this is amazing. And then visiting Portland throughout those years and having it really be a visible problem on the streets of the Nazi skinheads. And then when I finally moved here in 1994, it wasn't a visible problem anymore. So digging deeper into that organizing and how, you know, the story of the CHD working with the ARA and the Sharps as a larger community effort to um, get them off the streets. They, you know, they went underground. At the time it felt more like a victory because I didn't really think about them going underground and then popping back up. So it's hard to, when I say that it was from the perspective of the time, but it was like, oh, we have the streets back. We have our public space back. We can now organize around other things because we're not constantly dealing with this visible in your face, you know, threat of harassment and violence. And for me, I, you know, I grew up in the Midwest. So I was born in Chicago, lived there for uh, the early part of my childhood and wound up moving to Minneapolis and St. Paul. First, we moved to St. Paul, Minnesota, uh, then moved across the river to Minneapolis. So we moved to St. Paul in about 82. And then I wound up going to high school in Minneapolis. By the time I was in high school, I was having some uh, struggles, social issues, you know, trying to fit in, struggles around identity. And uh, I wound up hanging out in the hardcore punk scene and finding a home there. And shortly after I was introduced to people in that scene, uh, we became, a crew of us became really good friends. Uh, group of multiracial, you know, young men um, and women too. And we decided that we wanted to become skinheads. We were, we took interest in that particular uh, subcultural expression that was part of the, the broader punk and hardcore movement. Um, when we became skinheads, we were becoming skinheads uh, because a couple of older people we looked up to were skinheads. My, I personally had a very subjective interest in hanging out with people who were not using drugs and alcohol that were part of the scene because of some issues that I had already had with drugs and alcohol. And I was trying to be a sober teenager. And it turns out a, a handful of these guys were not doing drugs and alcohol. Um, Shortly after we got together and started to learn about the skinhead subculture that had started in England, actually in the late 60s, 
um, I really, I understood that, that, that part of what made the skinhead culture manifest was mixing between black West Indian immigrant youth and working class white kids in England. And that the music they enjoyed was reggae. Um, and the scene kind of changed and went underground for went deeper underground for a while. And then when it came back in the 70s and 80s, it was more closely aligned with with punk rock. And that was when there was a split in the movement. And some of the white kids got militant and became race uh became racist in their militancy. And there's a lot of complex reasons for that. Um, that history is a really fascinating history, but I, I have to go into it because as a, as a Black kid in America that was struggling around issues of race and identity, I found a place in a movement that had a place for me in it from its inception. And when I established this, this, these relationships with my new friends and we're hanging out, we're wearing the same clothes and listening to the same music and there's a lot of camaraderie, Right around that time, neo-Nazi skinheads started to get a lot of publicity in Newsweek, Time Magazine, um, the talk shows, the news, sensational news talk shows, right? Um, on daytime TV, uh, Donahue, Geraldo, Sally Jesse Raphael, Oprah. So there were these, show after show, there were these neo-Nazi boneheads coming on and getting in fights in you know on live television and talking about being white power often they would appear with the panel of guests that were also in the Ku Klux Klan or neo-Nazis literally in the American Socialist National Socialist uh, Workers Party and so forth so we're me and my friends are watching that and as we're watching it on TV we're like that's not the root that's not the true roots of this culture you know that's actually a, a shameful abomination for me, even more personally, being a black kid growing up in the United States, I'm identifying the threat of racial terror that is integral to the history of this country from the Klan and lynching and, and so forth. So uh, almost immediately after the, the explosion of daytime TV that sensationalized white power skinheads, there was a local Klansman who was part of the punk scene who organized a, a gang called the White Knights that was a neo-Nazi skinhead gang in Minneapolis. And my friends and I decided that we absolutely had to confront that gang and we did. And through the process of confronting that gang, we had to organize ourselves for survival and it became actually a violent struggle. And that was really the birth of the militancy that politicized me and my friends and um, cause us to have to reach out to other community uh, people, individuals, organizations um, to form alliances. And that was the birth of anti-racist action. I remember being a kid and seeing Donahue and Sally Jesse and all those shows where the Mike referenced that, where they were having all the white supremacists on and just not really, like knowing it was wrong, not really understanding. Um, yeah, I I didn't come to this work till much later on. I'm about 10 years younger than Mike and Aaron. So, so yeah. Before we get into the next questions, uh, let's actually hear some clips from the podcast. I'm not a big tough guy and I'm short and I'm thin. When I got to the penitentiary, 
I suddenly realized that, like, I didn't really know that, oh, I'm a small guy. <laughs> I was pretty intimidating. And it was about a week, I think, where people didn't know who I was. And it was pretty fine. People were friendly and I was trying to get the hang of things. And then I think the first newspaper article about my conviction came out. People started learning who I was. There were some Nazi groups where I was. They were not the majority. They immediately started giving me a hard time, harassing me, threatening me a little. The white people that I was friends with, for the most part, basically said, hey, you seem like a nice guy. I don't want to have the kind of problems that you have, so don't talk to me anymore. Sorry if that seems harsh, but that's the way it is. So I found myself very scared, very alone, not knowing what to do. I didn't know anything. People would confront me. I would swallow my pride. I would walk away. It's just very, very scary. So what happened was um, I wanted to try to keep myself safe as best I could. I felt very alone. Um, I didn't want to get assigned a work position in the chow hall. I thought that seemed pretty dangerous. So I requested a work position in the college. At that time, they offered college classes for inmates um, or GED programs, stuff like that. I got a job as a teacher's assistant for English as a second language. I tried to busy myself in as many ways as I could that I felt were like safe for me, college, reading. But ultimately, what saved me is the guys I was working with, the Hispanic community doing English as a second language. They started to wonder why I was different and why I always ate by myself and why I never went outside and I was all pale. And they were wondering if I was like a child molester or what the deal was. They learned about who I was. They basically said, look, we're gonna make you an honorary Mexican. You're gonna be with us now. We're gonna take you under our wing, but you look terrible. Starting today, you have to go outside every day. You have to start lifting weights. They had certain ways that they did their clothes and they brought me into their community. And honestly, it was wonderful. It was a type of community that I felt really comfortable in. I could relate to um, at that time. It was a multiracial community and we had fun and they kept me safe and I started getting healthy and I started feeling better about myself. That was another real turning point for me. That was a great clip. Um, that was the one that I chose. And um, there, it's kind of a twofold reason. There was, you know, a little, little selfish reason. Uh, one was, um, it's, it's rare that I, I, I hear things about Mexicans, like in Oregon and stuff like that. Like, we've been around, you know, for quite some time. Uh, in Oregon, and uh, I'm just going to share something in the chat if anybody ever wants to check it out. You know, a little quick, you know, the Oregon Encyclopedia about Hispanics in Oregon, you know, so it's good to have that representation. So, I mean, that 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 attracted me to that clip. Uh, the second part of it was, it's like, I, I've been in that guy's shoes. You know, I grew up in the 90s. Uh, I experienced a lot of violence growing up uh, with gangs and eventually, you know, got myself into some trouble and wound up doing some time. And so I could relate to what he was saying, but from the other side of it, you know, being a Mexican, being in an institution and, you know, we used to have friends and I mean, we call them our, the white minorities. And they would be like, you know, kind of like people that didn't fit in with the other folks, you know, because mostly because of racism and, you know, we, they'd come chill with us. So I, it kind of, you know, made me think about that as well. Uh, Are you, oh, go ahead. Okay, go ahead. Where what are you going to? I was just going to ask if we were opening up for questions or what that means. 
Sorry, let me let me get into the next question then. So the next question was, what are the similarities or the differences that you see with the uh, neo-Nazi movement of the um, 80s and the early 90s with today's protests and counter protests like, you know, Patriots prayers and, and uh, with Antifa. Do you see any uh, similarities? Being um, somebody that has been on the streets um, and to a lesser degree on the front line now, you know, but I've been, I've been down where the action is, so to speak. Um, so I feel like I, I've seen firsthand what the violence looks like. If, we, if, we, if we're gonna really get down to it, that's what people respond to um, when they see something on social media or on the news, uh, they see a video you know, that somebody recorded with their phone. Um, it's often the violence that makes them aware that there's even an issue, makes them aware of the presence of Antifa and the Proud Boys and Patriot Prayer and some of these other groups. So when we started organizing and resisting and fighting against Nazis in the 80s and 90s, it wasn't as sensational um, in terms of the planned brawls where people would like now what you'll have is you'll have thousands of Trump supporters um, in recent months, right? They'll plan to come to Portland or other cities to agitate, um, literally to piss people off, to try to offend people, to try to start violence. And they'll come with shields and blunt force objects and guns and knives and, you know, We've all seen it. And so what we see today is we see the right wing, um, the alt-right, the ultra-right, the fascists, the neo-Nazis, all banding together, coming to create violence. Um, they have their reasons, but the, the, the outcome is, is, is that they're coming to fight in the streets. What we have on the opposing side and the side that's resisting is people who get identified as Antifa, um, which is really broad, you know, anybody could be anti-fascist if you don't agree with the tenets of fascism, right? But Antifa has been painted in a very kind of narrow frame, which is basically young white people in black block. Um, young white people wearing black head to toe who conceal their identities and go out and vandalize things. That's how Antifa has been characterized. So you see these, these scenes with people fighting in the street the reality behind the scenes is that the history that led to what we see today goes back, you know, decades and decades. But in my time, the way that we participated in our, our level of resistance was to find out where the racists were that were organized um, and go to them and execute direct action, fight them where they stood. And eventually we had to organize outside of our immediate social groups um for safety and because we took the political nature of the work we were doing seriously we we understood we needed to build a, a mass movement against fascism so it started in the midwest in my in my time you know minneapolis connected with chicago milwaukee indianapolis madison wisconsin lawrence kansas um those were the i might be forgetting one or two but those were the initial cities that first came to what we called a syndicate meeting in 
about 86 or 87. Um, and that activity eventually spread around the United States and there were different ARA meetings held in different regions. Portland, Oregon was one of the places where neo-Nazis, and you hear a lot about this in the, in the podcast, the neo-Nazi problem was so bad that people did not feel safe. They didn't feel safe in public. They didn't feel safe in the hardcore punk scene, going to shows, and there was a lot of violence. And, and that is what led to white supremacist organizers targeting this city as a place to organize and recruit for their movement, which is what led to Mulugeta Sarah getting murdered. Um, prior to Mulugeta Sarah getting murdered, there were Minneapolis anti-racists, some of whom were part of my crew, the Baldies, who came out and helped do some direct action against neo-Nazis here. So when I moved to Portland in 92, I was introduced immediately uh, to the local anti-racists. Thank you. Erin or Sid, do you wanna expand on that any? Yeah, I think um, Mike really um, got in so much detail there, but I do think that the progressive liberal Portlanders are were really buying the idea that Antifa wasn't the broader anti-fascist all of us that mm -hmm. it was these kids that they could like handering about the violence or breaking windows or something more and these were the people who were putting their bodies on the line for this city for all of us to make a physical stance against the new right who are just here to bait us and they you know they have some they have some plan they come here with some offensive idea and we're on the defensive all of the time the broader we and aren't you know doing the like what's the problem you know where mike back in the day and his time is like oh, the problem is them, we're gonna go to them. There were no cameras then, there was not the surveillance state that we currently live in. And also the, you know, the surveillance state that we bring on ourselves with social media. So um, there are lots of things that are similar. There are lots of things that are different, but the main thing for me is that we, those of us with privilege, those of us with resources, I mean, those of us who are alive need to see ourselves as anti-fascist and need to see ourselves as Antifa and then step up to um, be an active part of it instead of letting other people define what Antifa is and then separate that to divide and conquer. We all need to proudly be Antifa. Thank you. I think, um, as I mean, I'm hoping a lot of us have seen Judas and the Black Messiah. Um, and I only bring that up because, you know, the, the story of Fred Hampton is, a, it's a precursor. You know, we're the work we do as anti-fascists is part of a continuum. If you can take a lot of the language that you hear us using in the podcast and in, in this event, and you're going to hear Fred Hampton and you're going to hear the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense using the same language, you know? It's an ongoing struggle. 
Thank you. Let's, with that, let's, uh, did you have something to add, Selena? Oh, well, the clip that I chose also speaks to kind of the differences. So I can let that go for that. Well, in that case, let's get into some clips. Clips. There was a show at Pine Street and it was, I think, Ken Miski and Kyle Brewster was their band and it was called Machine. I tried not to go to skinhead shows, but it turned out to be this massive skinhead crazy thing. And they were like singing their crappy music and they were all rioting and shouting and stuff. And I remember being there and I had Doc Martens, you know, the big thing to wear was Doc Martens. And I had a nice pair of Lady Docs that I bought. I was at 16, I don't know, I wasn't a big kid at all. And I remember them coming up to me, these girls, they were like, and they're probably 22 and like, why are you wearing white boots? Mind you, these are black leather boots. And I was like, they look black to me. But I remember sitting up, up on the stage because I was scared. I mean, there was a lot of them there and I was like trying to watch my back. But on the stage, there's the skinhead band. I remember trying to get out. They actually had to, to sneak me out of Pine Street because they, they kicked a bunch of skinheads out because they were fighting. They were outside chanting, kill the, I'm gonna say it, kill the nigger. They're talking about me. They were talking about me. I was this little black girl and that's what they were chanting, you know? So the bouncers got worried and there was a group of people there that I knew and they put a, a trench coat over me and stuck me out to this car. The guy's car wouldn't start. He got out. I think the driver, he was actually like Chinese or was Asian. He went out. They didn't want him. When I was in the back seat, I had two people on either side of me. There were skinhead bodies all over the car. They all had their straps. Their bodies were plastered onto the car. They got a bat. They were trying to hit the, the window and the guy's car wouldn't start. They broke the windows. Seriously, everybody in that car got like punched or hit except for me. Finally, the, the car started, thank God, and we drove across Burnside back downtown. I mean, those people really saved my life. This is a week before they killed Mulegeta Sarah. Okay, so this stuff was already brewing. It's a powerful clip. That, that was the one I chose. Um, do you want to go in? I don't do you want to play the one that you wanted to play to Selena? Um, if you want to speak to that one, that's, that's just, fine. You know, man. I, I have to be, uh, I'm just so grateful that China contributed her story. You know, we talk about things like intersectionality. We have to understand that even though the terms that we use might have recently made it into our consciousness or awareness, these issues have been going on. And people like China, China specifically as an individual, being a Black woman in a predominantly white subcultural scene um, in one of the most racist cities in the United States with a prob with a racial terror problem is um, holding her ground as a, a young a young person and not even fully adult yet and standing up for her right to exist against 
people whose ideological framework is based on her extermination. So it is what it is. You can hear that's a powerful person. And I'm just glad I know her. I'm glad she contributed. And, you know, we as there's a lot of academics doing a lot of work around these issues that use, you know, big words and, and whatnot, but they weren't there. And so to hear from her in her words, what she survived is, um, again, it's powerful. That's why I chose that clip. Thank you. What do you see are the similarities between groups from the early 90s and groups now that are organizing uh, on the right? Well, the groups that are organizing now are younger than, you know, the folks that picked up the ball in the 80s and 90s had been around for a while. And now we've got a bunch of young people. And um, quite frankly, we've got a problem on our hands. And it's big. Yeah. The problem is big. And it's bigger than anybody realizes it because we're at the beginning of it. And I can't stress that enough. Um, this this is a huge issue. Yeah. And it's not going away quickly. Look, we have a fight on our hands. And people are pretending that it's, you know, four minutes of battle and they'll get it done. And uh, that ain't that way. We're in deep, and uh, we gotta get prepared for you know the next generation of battles, and we're not doing it. What do you think it would take to be prepared? Smarter, smarter. So more intelligence gathering, that type of thing? Well, more intelligence gathering, but smarter. Um, act like there's a battle going on. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and build towards tomorrow. What do you think that looks like? What would that be like? Yeah. Multi-year funding would help. That would be one thing that would help a lot. Mm-hmm. And uh, doing things aimed at tomorrow's young people. That's what would help. Mm-hmm. Getting ready for the, you know, we're fighting the battles now that we have to fight because we have to fight them. Yeah. And the way to do it. It sounds like you think that there's a much larger event coming. Can you speak to that more? Well, look, the white supremacists have been organizing against immigrants since David Duke did a staged a Klan watch, staged a militia of armed white supremacists on the border with Mexico in the 1970s. Aryan nations in the 1980s used to hand out maps about the big immigration flow with big red arrows in 83 and 84. And I got a copy that I picked up in Kansas, rural Kansas. And it's been a long time on their agenda. Mm -hmm. They have been paying attention to the calendar. They know with the certainty that there's a battle to come, and they've been acting like it. Mm-hmm. You hear well, their slogan that uh, immigration is white genocide is because white people will lose their power through uh, a majority dominance. Now, frankly, I think that's a good thing, but they don't, and there's a lot of white people who agree with them. 
I think there's it's 55%. I think the number is 55%. I've written it down a billion times. Uh, the number, that's a high number of white people who think black people are oppressing them. There's massive misinformation and, uh, un, you know, false consciousness out there. Mm -hmm. And on the coast, it's not as big to see, but it exists on the coast too. Mm -hmm. It exists in the Portland area. And this battle is going to get tough when a majority of people are no are no longer white. It's they're, they're a minority in a nation of minorities. Yeah, I saw recently that uh, the number of children or babies of color are the number was larger this year than white babies. You bet, Red Rider. That's that's what's coming down the pike. And and they've been playing this ball that white people are dispossessed. They, they've been saying that since 72, these white supremacists. Mm -hmm. now, they got, now they got a chance to say, yeah, there's more of them than there is of us. They're destroying our culture. And they're finding followers. Mm -hmm. And we think we're going to beat it out of them. No, we got to get education out into every hand. Mm -hmm. So do you think it's more about winning the hearts and minds than actually like combat, like physical combat? Yes. Mm -hmm. It's a battle for hearts and minds. So this was a clip that I chose. Um, it was actually not in the podcast proper. Um, this is Leonard Zeskind. He's a Jewish man, a scholar, and he's been an organizer around um, fighting white nationalism for decades. And he was somebody that was um, referred to us by several of the people from the Coalition for Human Dignity. And um, I chose this clip because, because it wasn't included in the podcast, but I think the content is very important. Um, it, it kind of haunted me. And I'm always looking for kind of what's next, what can I do, what can we do? And I think that what Leonard is speaking to here about um, winning the hearts and minds of people and not to say that we don't need um, other methods and strategies and tactics, um, but I think that's a huge piece. And also what he mentioned about kids and um, organizing toward the future. Um, and I, I heard multiple people throughout the podcast mention education. And I just think that that, that part is so important. And I wanted to emphasize that. Thank you, Selena. You know, that last clip actually kind of, and what you just said kind of leads into the next question. Uh, and it also has to deal with the last program that we had where we talked about the methods that were used in that era of the podcast. And um, one of the presenters last said that, uh, you know, the, nowadays you have to take a different approach. And what would you say that approach would be in today's world? I think that Deskin uh, said it all. What I would add, and, and Selena reinforces it, you know, I too, since I was a boy, have been worried about the future. 
based on what I understand about history and what I observe in the present. Um, there's a notorious and famous phrase that I don't have to look up or I don't want to look up right now because I don't want to break the flow. But if anybody wants to look it up, you can. If you look up the 14 words, I don't have it, the phrase memorized, but it's a favorite amongst uh, white supremacists worldwide. 14 words basically are saying the role of white supremacists is to secure a future that's safe for white children. Um, in their statement, even though they're talking about a very patriarchal, racist, genocidal concept, they're also centering um, heteronormativity as a standard for sustaining the white race, which is really at the basis of white supremacy. When you talk to an educated, militant white supremacist, it's about numbers, it's about population, and it's about white people not wanting to be disenfranchised by their minority status and by being um, disproportionately violent to maintain their place of power. You see this reinforced on all levels of society in all institutions. And uh, that's what we're facing. So there's, it's twofold. We do have to think about education. We do have to think about people who have been miseducated to identify with uh, white entitlement as something that places them higher on the spectrum of, of of biology and human hierarchy. Um, we have to challenge all the ideas that are part of violent white supremacist world domination, which is so ingrained in the history of colonial, imperial, capitalist, extractive, patriarchal processes that have really defined the modern world that we live in. We have to be able to challenge that through consciousness and awareness raising and critical thinking and critical analysis. And at the same time, there is going to come a time where people have to put their bodies on the line. And a good amount of those people need that are willing to do that need to be other white folks that are willing to actively engage against the consequence that centuries of this colonial, imperial, patriarchal, capitalist, extractive, genocidal project has been uh, ravaging the earth through. So I'm not gonna say that we can only think about hearts and minds because we know when they're coming to commit acts of racial terror, they need to understand in their bodies and in their minds that it's not safe for them to operate. Sometimes it takes force to make that clear. People talk a lot about a diversity of tactics, and um, I think that this is a crucial time for it. There needs to be all kinds of people doing this work, and white people need to be doing the work on ourselves to recognize the white supremacist um, world that we live in and all of the white entitlement that we have. And I would highly recommend doing the Me and White Supremacy Workbook by Layla Saad um, to help 
you see some of the water that you're swimming in and help you take some of the steps to be able um, to just notice, notice your white entitlement and then do something about it. Um, and it's a, uh, some people are gonna be way better at winning hearts and minds. And some people are gonna be great with education and some people are gonna be really patient. And um, some people are gonna just wanna punch the fuck out of people. And we need all, we need every single person. And so, you know, you will find, you will find your place if you just start looking. And there are a lot of us here to help you find your place because we have to win. And it is, it took us a long time to get here. And there is a lot of people who really just want to be comfortably white in their comfortably white worlds and and fuck them like no we we should exist mike you know like the fact that mike has to worry about his his and his family safety like breaks my heart every day so like fuck that let's you know and so you know this can happen all over for everybody and it actually it needs to so you know we can you have a place so diversity of tactics for real. Definitely. And I want to reiterate that in sharing that clip, I was not, it, yes, diversity of tactics for sure. <laughs> Everybody is needed. <laughs>